Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, co-hosting with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmeyer. This week, we're talking about the coming emergence of cicadas. We have three guests joining us today. We have Steve Cotter, City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department Natural Resource Manager. Megan Abraham is Indiana Department of Natural Resources Division Director and State Entomologist. And also joining us is Elizabeth Barnes, a PhD and exotic forest pest educator at Purdue University. You can join us on the program today by sending your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and send your questions there at Noon Edition. Well, I'm, I appreciate everybody being here with us today. This is one of those topics we can only do every 17 years. So I want to start with uh, with Megan Abraham and just ask you, Megan, if you could kind of um, give us a sense of what's ahead. What are we going to be seeing here when the cicadas start coming out of the ground? Sure. I'm happy to do so. Um, <clears throat> so underneath the ground, developing underneath our trees for the last 17 years has been brood 10 of the cicadas. Um, these are periodical 17-year cicadas. We've got different subspecies of cicadas here in Indiana. Some of them come out every year, and we see them every year. Some of them are periodical and they come out either every 13 or every 17 years um, and this year we've got um, brood x coming out or brood 10 um, and so we're excited to see those we're going to see quite a few of them this year um, we're expecting numbers in the uh, millions uh, towards of 1.5 millions per acre are going to emerge out of our forested areas um, and they're going to make quite a bit of noise so we're going to see them throughout indiana it's crazy to think about those numbers um, so if if a person happens to live on a uh, a one acre lot, they may have a million and a half cicadas to themselves. Yeah, well, technically their house hopefully is taking up. Oh, yeah, that. right. So, but yeah, um, now remember, if you're in an area that didn't have these trees to lay eggs on um, 17 years ago, it's not going to be as uh, impacted. We're going to see in in areas where maybe your house might have been created 10 years ago and before you were put there, um, there was a cornfield. You're not going to see as many cicadas um, because there won't be trees that they would have laid their eggs on 17 years ago in that area. In areas that are a little bit older and more mature uh, or forested, surrounded by forests that have been there for longer than 17 years, you will see quite a bit of cicada activity. All right, Elizabeth Barnes, I've already learned something today. I've been calling this Brood X because it sounds so much like a, a science fiction movie. And now I learn that technically it's Brood 10. So where does the name come from? Um, yeah, it's it's a mistake that gets really commonly made. Sometimes I find myself falling into calling them Brood X as well. Um, the the name comes from uh, the series of no Roman numerals that were assigned to each of the 17-year and 13-year broods. Um, and so hypothetically, you could have 1 through 17 for the 17-year broods and then 18 through 30 for the 13-year broods. Um, but we don't have uh, broods that come out for each of those years. Uh, so we only have uh, uh, three active 13-year broods and 12 active 17-year broods. Um, and we had two more or one more brood of each of those, but unfortunately they, they're extinct now. So that leaves seven, uh, 15 active broods total. 
So what does somebody like you do to get ready for having these uh, cicadas coming up? I mean, what, what, how, how do you prepare for them as a, as a forest pest educator? <laughs> um, well, we're, we're doing all sorts of things. Uh, we're trying to um, kind of get things ready for both the, you know, the people who are worried about the emergence and worried about their trees and also the people who are just excited and want to celebrate the emergence of these insects. Um, so we have several citizen science programs going. Um, there's uh, one called Cicada Safari um, that's run actually by Mount St. Joseph College uh, or excuse me, university, um, that is a national program to uh, track cicadas specifically. So you can download the Cicada Safari app to track those cicadas. Uh, Purdue is also doing two projects through iNaturalist, which is a general biodiversity app. Um, one, we're asking people to monitor their trees for the cicada emergence so that we can get some good, like really precise data about when the cicadas are emerging at the, that local level. Um, and then the second is a bio blitz, which uh, the idea behind a bio blitz is you go out and you just collect as much biodiversity data as you can in a short time. So for that, we want people to pick their favorite spot, um, join our uh, uh, Indiana Cicada Fest project on iNaturalist, go outside and just take a picture of everything alive that they see and add it to iNaturalist. All right. Steve Cotter in, in the city of Bloomington. Um, you know, I've been, people of a certain age, like like me, uh, have been through this before. So, you know, again, what do you do as a natural resource manager? And are there are there parts of our, our natural resources, trees or other um, insects or anything that you're particularly worried about? Not really. Um, it turns out that on the whole, cicadas are actually good for trees. Uh, they do aerate the soil around the trees, which is good for them periodically. Um, and then the nitrogen from their bodies actually decay, helps trees as well. So there will be some damage to branches, um, mostly the the smaller branches at the ends, uh, so sort of the outer perimeter of the trees. Uh, and some of those branches will die and snap off. Uh, and that will affect some of the, um, the nut producing trees, like acorns and things. Uh, but overall, cicadas are actually good for trees. Steve, I, I believe you were here last time that this occurred. Were there particular areas of Bloomington where that got the most um, activity and just because I got them last time do you will they will it be the same kind of situation this time well it is true that um, the number of cicadas that will come out in any given area depends on what the area looked like 17 years earlier so we do have a lot of trees out at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve and I think that felt like ground zero for a lot of people out there, it got really loud. Uh, they say they can it can produce a sound over 100 decibels, which is about as loud as a lawnmower. So it is going to be challenging to hear people talk. Um, but I think the the natural areas are probably going to have more of them than the developed areas. All right, we're talking about cicadas today on Noon Edition. If you have questions or comments, you can. Send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also um, follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. Sarah? We've gotten a lot of questions about cicadas, but first, maybe Meg, you can just answer how long are they going to be here once they emerge? Right. So as adults, they only spend about six weeks on the surface. So they'll be here anytime now and then mid to late June, they'll be gone again. Um, at least our periodical cicadas. Now we'll still see our annual cicadas later on in the year um, emerging out and, and they'll, they'll be different. The, the uh, brood X or brood 10 has a, a black body with bright red eyes um, and our annual cicadas have brown eyes. 
And, and Steve was talking about the noise they make. Is there a time of day when that's worse? You know, I am. I have not heard that. Um, they're just going to be loud, and because there's so many of them in chorus, it's the males that are that are making that noise, and they're reaching out to the females to find mating partners. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that just goes on. So, Elizabeth, do you know if there's uh, it still stop it in the middle of the night at all? Um, so, uh, the, what I've heard is that, uh, they tend to kind of ramp up in the late afternoon because they like that warmth and then they'll quiet down at night. And so if you hear something at night that you think might be a cicada, it's either a cicada that's been startled by something. So it's kind of making a little panicked noise or it's something else like, uh, crickets or, uh, tree frogs sometimes get mistaken for cicadas as well. All right, we have another question that came in, and, and I had just heard this question in the last couple of days, and then I heard it wasn't true. So I want to, I think we'll use this question as a, a good public service to our listeners. Uh, Mary Alice asked, do snakes eat cicadas? I've heard they are a preferred food for copperheads. Is this an urban legend? Who wants to handle that? Um, I, I can jump on. Um, the snakes will eat cicadas, um, but it, it's sort of a, an issue of numbers and ease of access for a lot of animals. There's going to be so many cicadas that many animals will be going after them and eating them. Um, basically, anything that would try and eat an insect normally will try and eat a cicada. That, that um, was mentioned to me in the context of people should sort of keep a close eye on their dogs because if they go running around uh, there may be copperheads around that wouldn't normally be around is that something people should be aware of i don't think that it'll cause more copperheads to show up um, but it is true that this will um, increase the diet of a lot of the predators out there or predators of insects um, so if you think about it then that means there's a little there's going to be more game birds there's going to be more um, rodents that are eating insects and they'll have a flush diet this year so we might see an increase in numbers of some of these predators in, in the coming years, at least we did last time around. Um, but I don't think that that means that it's uh, a danger for our animals um, as far as the, the predators, because they are not interested in being around our people any more than, than they were before. Okay. Well, I, I remember the last time, you know, four, 17 years ago, I remember having a big dog that liked to eat all the shells. Does this have... Um, any, is there any danger for dogs that aren't predators, but they just might want to eat these shells that are lying around? So with any um, pet, you have to monitor what they're doing outdoors. I um, would say that if your dog gets a hold of one or two of these things, it's not going to be a problem. But if they find quite a few of them and start gobbling them up, like with any foreign uh diet they would probably get a little bit ill um, also remember that these are related to um, the shellfish um, and so biologically if you have a shrimp allergy you should probably avoid eating something like a cicada that's a really interesting point because i, I have read that some people do um, cook them and eat them and can Elizabeth, can you talk, or Megan, either one of you, can you talk about that? I'm going to defer to Elizabeth on this one. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, plenty of people do eat them. There's actually a really long history of people eating cicadas, basically all the way back to um, the, the records that we have, both written and oral records of people either eating them as kind of a treat or sometimes uh, during really hard times, people would turn to the cicadas for food instead. Uh, you can kind of treat them like you would treat a shrimp in terms of what you can do with it. Um, so uh, putting uh, some butter and garlic and a little bit of lemon on it is quite popular. Um, barbecuing them is also very popular. Pizza, uh, even ice cream. Um, the, the things that we want to remind people, uh, Megan already mentioned the shellfish allergy. So just to reiterate, if you're allergic to shellfish, you want to avoid cicadas. And then the second thing is that 
because they're a wild animal that you're gathering from outdoors where you don't know the history of the area, you know, you want to be cautious in the same way as you would be with anything that you're gathering from the wild. You kind of want to know what's the history of pesticide use in the area. You want to look at the cicadas and see if they seem healthy and lively. And if they don't, you probably don't want to eat those, things like that. And of course, as always, if you consume cicadas, interact with cicadas, and you feel sick afterwards, um, you know, use your best judgment and consult a doctor if you think you need to. All right, Steve Cutter. So I know that, um, you know, you're the natural resource manager for the parks, but the parks have a lot of outdoor activities that'll go on in the summer. I mean, I think about all the softball fields and all the little league fields and um, golf courses and things like that, that are going to, I would assume, have a good number of cicadas just coming up, you know, during the time that people are playing. Is there anything that the parks department is doing or is there anything to be concerned about with all the activity that will be going on outside um, in the midst of all these insects? I would say not really to be concerned about, but it's something that the programmers are aware of. Uh, I know they're planning to buy additional microphones for the concerts in the park this year because it's going to be hard to hear over the cicadas in some places. Um, I did hear from our urban forester that they are not planning anything preemptively. Uh, They will not be netting trees. However, people can do that if they wish. Uh, Putting a fine net over small trees can protect the branches if you're trying to get a tree established. For large trees, it's not practical and and really not necessary. Uh, But they do plan to do corrective pruning afterwards for the the branch ends that snap off. Uh, If there are a lot of eggs deposited in a branch, it does weaken the branch. And then if it gets windy, that branch can break. And they do plan to um, prune a lot of those trees after the fact. Okay. So Elizabeth, um, for the, uh, you know, the 17 years between the time that these insects emerge you know, what are they, what are they doing? They are hanging out underground, feeding on tree roots. Um, They are not actually damaging the tissue itself of the tree roots. They're just basically drinking the the fluid in those roots. Uh, They don't move very far underground. They're, they're just staying down there and growing and waiting for the right time to come out. And how big do they actually get? Have we covered that yet? I don't think I've heard you say how big that that these are going to wind up. Um, so they're not they're not too big. Um, the the nymphs are about oh, I would say half an inch to uh, three fourths of an inch, and the adults are somewhere between uh, one to two inches. So they're not they're not huge, um, but. That when you get enough of them, it seems a bit overwhelming. Yeah, I was trying to think about, you know, that old dog I had trying to eat one or two when there were like, you know, hundreds around where he was. <laughs> Sarah? So we've, we've been talking a lot, obviously, about cicadas emerging here. Where else in the country are they going to be? Or is this really the worst spot? Um, Megan, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, Brood 10 will show up in several states. Um, It just depends on which brood you're referring to. This one, um, you can look um, online and see there are several states that are are receiving them in the Midwest. Um, And so most of the states around us will see brood 10 as well. Um, Elizabeth, do you know outlying states? I think I saw something about Maryland. and a few others. Yeah, they they span all the way to the East Coast. Um, so they'll be in Maryland. There is a um, uh, kind of weird gap um, in between the, the East Coast population of Brood 10 and uh, where, where we are, but they do, they cover large portions of the South and uh, the Midwest and sort of the the lower part of um, not up into New England, but the the lower part of the East Coast. Still trying to to uh, 
you know, to get that, you know, we're on radio, so we, we don't have a lot of visuals here, but I read something, uh, I think it was in the Indianapolis Star, and Elizabeth, you were quoted, and the quote you said was, it makes the ground look like it's bubbling or boiling. And I wanted you to sort of describe, you know, what led you to that kind of um, um, a description? There, there are just so many of the cicada nymphs that are coming out of the ground at a given time that um, particularly if they're, they're coming up sort of when it's dark at night um, and it's a little bit harder to see, there's just these little thousands and thousands of these little brown things moving on the ground, um, which I suppose sounds like a horror movie to a lot of the people listening right now. As an entomologist, I just think it sounds very exciting and cool. Um, but yeah, the cicada nymphs come out of the ground, then they climb up trees or fence posts so that they can they can molt and um, harden on those trees. That's when it really sounds like brood X when you're talking about <laughs> those terms. All right. So we have, yeah, you've talked about uh, citizen scientists again, and I, I wanted to go back to that a little bit. We have had a question we'll get to in a little bit about, about kids and what kids might be able to learn from this, but can you, can you talk a little bit more about, um, about what you hope Hoosiers will do to help uh, with any kind of research? Certainly. Um, the big thing is we're hoping to get really kind of fine scale data this time around about where the cicadas are. Um, the last time they emerged, uh, not as many people had smartphones with them. So it was, we got a lot of really good county level data about the cicadas, but not as precise as we can get now. Um, if people take a picture, most smartphones will embed GPS coordinates into that picture. Um, and so if you add it to the apps, we have that data. Um, and then that helps everything from um, genetics work all the way through to projects um, looking at management recommendations. Uh, something I get asked a lot is, you know, will the cicadas emerge at my house? Should I be worried? And if I had that kind of fine scale data, I could say, yes, no, this is the closest big emergence to you and things like that. Mm -hmm. All right. If you have questions for our three guests today, we're talking about Brood 10. We uh, have talked about how uh, many people call it Brood X and because of the the some, sometimes scientific nature of what we're going to be seeing, it seems very appropriate, but it's actually Brood 10. We have Steve Cotter, City of Bloomington Parks and Recreation Department, Natural Resource Manager, Megan Abraham, Indiana Department of Natural Resources, Division Director and State Entomologist, and Elizabeth Barnes, uh, Exotic Forest Pet Educator at Purdue University. If you want to send us your questions or your comments, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can also send us questions uh, over Twitter at Noon Edition. So I, I was wondering, I know we had a question about children and about whether there's um, any reason that, uh, you know, if there's like a, I don't know, any kind of, uh, like you would have mosquito um some kind of mosquito spray to keep mosquitoes from biting kids and anybody else when they go out. Is there any preparation that parents should take if they're going to take their kids um, out on a, a big adventure to be looking at these, um, at, at these cicadas? Absolutely not. Um, honestly, there's nothing that these guys can do really to harm a person. Uh, they don't have mouth parts that will are biting, they've got um, a straw attached to the front of their, their face. Um, and that's a way that they would feed. Um, so it's not something that they would be uh, able to do. Um, now these guys aren't the best flyers and they bumble around a lot. So they might end up landing on somebody which could startle someone. Um, that's about as much as the damage as that they can do. Um, they're, they're, like I said, not fantastic at flying. And so they'll try and find upright um, object in order to land on um, and that upright object might be you or your your child um, but now these 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 insects are some of the longest living insects that we have in the world so 
I think it would be a great opportunity to educate kids and show them um, how nature works and, and how wonderful this opportunity to see these guys out in the field is. And if anyone, sorry, just to hop on to the end of that, um, if you're looking for any kind of cicada themed activities, we had a whole cicada day at Bug Bowl this year. Um, and because it was virtual, all the videos for that are still up. So we have, you know, uh, how to decorate your cookies like cicadas. And there's actually a contest associated with that and cicada origami and all sorts of um, fun things that you can do with kids about cicadas. Okay, Elizabeth, um, perhaps you can take this next question. Um, Lorraine is wondering about the best prevention of plant damage from cicadas. Is there any merit to aluminum foil at the base of small trees and shrubs and peppermint oil? And she says it's one of the few bugs that don't resist predators. Um, I, I don't think the aluminum foil would really help very much because the cicadas can fly between trees. Uh, the best way to really protect your trees from cicadas, if you've, if you've got a small tree and you're concerned about, um, about it and you want to protect it, um, the best way to do that would be to use um, insect netting. You can find it at a lot of the big box stores um, and you just wrap that around uh, the, the tree, tie it at the bottom, that keeps any sort of, um, that keeps the cicadas from getting in. Um, you just have to make sure that the holes are small enough that the cicadas can't get through. Uh, and that's actually been shown to be, it's in most cases for most people, it's going to be cheaper and more effective than using any sort of pesticide spray. What about for your garden and for your flowers? Nope, they, they should be fine. Uh, the cicadas are only really interested in deciduous trees, so the trees that lose their leaves in the fall. Um, they might, there's an off chance that occasionally a cicada might get confused and try and lay its eggs and, you know, something like a corn plant, but 99.9% .9 of the time they're going to leave your garden totally alone. And in fact, when they die and fall to the ground, your garden might actually get some extra fertilizer, which could help it out a little. And okay, as now Steve mentioned there will be a little bit of um, browning to the edge of ends of, of the trees later on this fall. Um, overall, that's not enough damage to, to cause enough damage to worry about your tree. Um, those leaves will die off at the end of the year, and then next year's leaves will be just fine. Okay, a sort of um a random question here. I'm not sure who's best suited. I'll throw it out there and we'll see. Um, can I save money this summer catching them and feeding them to my pet reptile? Megan, Elizabeth. Um, okay, so I actually have a couple pet reptiles myself. So um, I I am familiar with this uh, this this issue. I would not recommend it. I mean, I'm so I'm not a vet. I'm not an expert in reptiles, but just personally, I would not feed my own reptiles, wild caught cicadas, um, because there's always the risk of some sort of pathogen or um, they might have been treated with pesticides. Um, and then if your reptile eats it, they might get sick from that. So um, that's why, at least with my own reptiles, I always just stick to ones that I, that I order in instead of using wild ones. And I, most people who keep reptiles from my experience will recommend the same thing. Steve, I know you mentioned the urban forester before. Um, I've seen, you know, with, in, on private property, uh, around the city, there are some people that are using that netting on, it looks like some smaller trees. I mean, are there any trees in the city, uh, maybe some things that have been planted recently, uh, where that netting is being used? Not on uh, city trees currently. There, there are just too many of them and it, it would be too much work. But for people who are trying to get small fruit trees or, or some other uh, ornamental trees established around their house, it, it might make sense. It will add some protection. Uh, but for larger trees, as was mentioned earlier, it's really not necessary. Okay. Um, Elizabeth, I want to follow up on something you said the other day, because, you know, you, it, it just, you just said it like um, I and everybody else should know what it is, but I'm not familiar with bug bowl. 
Right. Um, yeah, I, I guess it, it, it kind of takes up so much of our life um, it, that here at Purdue that I forget that other people don't know about it. Um, so Bug Bowl is this annual uh, bug festival that Purdue holds. Normally it's in person. It's over a weekend. We have uh, an insect petting zoo. We have someone who comes in and brings in their like massive, giant, beautiful collection of preserved insects. Um, and this year we did it online over a week and we had all sorts of informational videos about um, insects and we had Q&As and tours of our um, insect collection, things like that. So it's kind of a celebration of all things insect related. Okay. Can you describe the insect petting zoo a little bit more? <laughs> Sure. Um, so people in the insect petting zoo, they can get to um, pet a caterpillar. We usually have tomato hornworms. Um, they can uh, usually hold one of our tarantulas, uh, which are not insects, but they are arthropods. So we include them in the petting zoo. Um, what else? We have uh, death feigning beetles, which are these little um, kind of blue black beetles and their defense mechanism is they pretend to be dead. So they'll sort of roll over, fall on their back, uh, relax their arms and say, I'm dead, I'm dead, don't eat me, but they're, they're fine and alive. Um, yeah, so people can come in and pet them and get to kind of experience insects in a, in a controlled setting to get to learn about them a little bit more. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. I appreciate it. Usually also held at the same time that Purdue holds their spring fling. So there's other activities going on with the other schools um, as well. So, Okay. And if I, I could add, Bob, oh, yeah. we, have, we have an event here locally called Bug Fest that will be held on October 2nd this year. We usually do it in June, but it's been pushed back because of COVID. And that will be at uh, Hilltop Nature and Garden Center on IU campus. So what do you do there, Steve? We have local experts come in and, and some from around the state to talk about uh, importance of insects, uh, everything from butterflies to fleas. And we get a lot of um, local families coming through, just interested in, in bugs and natural things. And it really is a, a fun event and a great place to learn about the importance of insects. So we've heard a lot about, um, you know, bees and pollinators and how important they are to the, uh, you know, to our, our ecosystem. Is there interaction, any interaction between the cicadas and the bee population? Is that anything that we should be concerned about? For the most part, no. Um, they don't have the food, same food sources. They're not interested in the same things. Um, there is a wasp, a cicada killer wasp, that is fairly large that likes to eat cicadas, but these are usually the annual cicadas that it goes after. But that cicada wasp is a good-sized wasp, about uh, two inches and about the same size as a murder hornet. So if you see uh, this cicada wasp and it's carrying a cicada in its mouth, um, don't be alarmed that it could be a murder hornet. Uh, murder hornets are only located at this point on the West Coast. Uh, the cicada wasp is interested only in the cicada. It, it stings and paralyzes its own cicada and then takes it back to um, a burrow underground where it'll lay an egg and um, feed its young. All right, so um, question you, I don't know, be curious to hear your answer, but what do you do if you don't want the cicadas near your house or you, you want to keep them away? Is there anything you can do? <laughs> you know, this year, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot you're going to be able to do um, if they come around you. And I remember if you're living in a wooded area, you're around insects all the time and you just don't see them or hear them as often as you will this time around. Um, and they are more interested in each other than any of humans. Um, I have seen some research that says that if you're mowing the lawn, they might be attracted to that noise um, and come and see what's going on. Um, but um, again, if, if you're not really excited about insects in general, I would just say to stay away from them. They will only be here for the next six weeks. Um, it's a, just a short-term kind of a thing, um, and and really, it's it's a wonderful experience to be able to teach people about. So, 
do bats and I'm thinking bats and squirrels like those those sort of things will they eat them absolutely any kind of rodent that's out there um, will eat them any um, any predator that usually it's any kind of insect would be interested in feeding on these guys um, bats are going to be nighttime predators just like usual um, and so you might not notice them out there all right we're answering all of your questions today and and many of our own about brood 10 the cicadas that are going to be um, showing up um, about a million maybe a million million and a half cicadas an acre in some areas around our community if you have questions or comments you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org you can also follow us on twitter and send us questions there at noon edition Okay, we got another question that was sent in via email from Wendy, and her question, um, do very young rows of Sharon bushes need to be protected from cicadas? They lose their leaves, and they have wooden branches. We've used bridal veil tool to wrap a little young dogwood and a very short crab apple. How about a very young crepe myrtle? For the most part, these guys are cued to certain um, certain things that, that their perfect location for laying eggs is going to be. So they're more interested, as Elizabeth said, in these deciduous trees. Um, they're really not going to be interested in the smaller bushes um, because they don't see them as an, an alternative for laying egg, the hundreds of eggs that they're going to lay. Um, and they're looking for fresh new growth um, because that's easier for them to create a, a crease or a, a slit in to, um, to lay their eggs. So that's why they're going to see this overall browning on the outside of trees. But if you look at some of the older established um, growth, you're not going to see as much damage there. So the fact that the cicadas come around this brood 10 comes around every 17 years. Um, has there been much, re much research about the cicadas in conjunction with climate change? And have we learned anything about climate change because of the, uh, you know, the, the nature of them coming back every 17 years into a, perhaps a different kind of climate? Steve? Look like you. Interesting question, but I'm, I'm not aware <laughs> of any research in that area. Uh -huh was some um, discussion about whether they would be coming out earlier this year because of climate change warming up the soils. Apparently they come out when the soil temperature hits 64 degrees. So in theory, that is uh, moving up in the calendar year. Um, but I'm not aware of any research that's looked specifically at that. All right, Elizabeth or Megan? I, as Elizabeth mentioned, I'm not sure that there would be detailed enough information yet on something like that. And because they're only coming out every 17 years, this 17-year cycle is something that's been um, around for centuries. And they basically have developed this so that there's so many of them that not all their predators can eat them while they're out um, breeding. Um, so that's, it's an, it's this 17 year cycle is more about ensuring their, their genetic line continues than it is about climate change. So I'm not sure that any of that's been researched yet, or that you could with the data that we have available to us. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Megan, another question we got in this one about moles. Um, the question is moles have been a growing problem for Bloomington homeowners in recent years. Anthony asks, can we expect this problem to recede as brood X emerges and then die off? Well, remember, moles are feeding underground, and these guys have been underground for 17 years. So to me, that would mean that uh, the moles should be finding them. But I'm not sure that um, it would decrease the number of moles. It might actually increase the number of moles. Elizabeth, do you have any knowledge on that? 
I, I don't know about moles specifically, but we are expecting to see kind of an increase in population levels for anything that would be eating the cicadas. Um, for example, uh, birds that are feeding on insects, they're predicted to be more survival in um, their nests this year because they're better able to feed them. So there, there are all sorts of ripple effects. Um, I'm not sure about moles specifically, though. That sounds like it might be something other than the cicadas leading to the increase in population. So I don't know how the cicadas will affect it. Yeah, I know when we do our gardening show, that's always a popular question about the moles. It does seem more consistent. So, <laughs> that, um, so we got another question. Why, why did we see the emergence of some cicadas in 2017? Elizabeth, do you want to take that one? Sure. Um, it, so it, it could be for two reasons. Um, one, if it is actually the 17-year the cicadas, sometimes they get things a little bit wrong and they will emerge early. Um, and the ones that emerge early usually get gobbled up really quickly. And that's one of the things that kind of helps maintain a selective um, pressure that keeps this 17-year cycle going, is the ones that come out early are just eaten before they're able to really reproduce. Um, the second thing is um, people might be thinking of the annual cicadas, which do come out every single year in August, um, and those are completely different species of cicadas. They're pretty loud too, though. They're just not quite as loud as these millions are going to be. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a numbers game in terms of the noise. So our annual cicadas are loud, but there are many fewer of them each year. So they don't create the like the deafening kind of wall of sound that you get with the 17 year cicadas. Here's another question that that we got actually from our producer. What will happen if cicadas emerge into deforested areas or places that were appealing to them 17 years ago, but have since become more developed? Well, because we've deforested that area, it's not going to have trees for the nymphs to feed on or the grubs to feed on underground. So likely they won't be alive any longer. Okay. Elizabeth, did you have something to add to that? Oh, no, I was basically going to say exactly what (laughs) Megan said. They need the trees for that full 17 years. You take them away, you lose the cicadas. All right. Good. So, um, more questions about the, you know, about the aftermath, um, you know, after they're here and pretty much gone, I mean, is there, uh, can the shells be used in composting or is there any other good use, use for uh, the debris that's left after they're gone? I would defer to Steve on that. Like he mentioned, any of the leftover material can be incorporated into the soil to create a little bit more of a compost effect. Um, but uh, other than that. Yeah, I would agree. I think that they, they are great for the soil. They're pretty heavy insects. So there's a lot of mass there. Uh, so you certainly could gather them and, and throw them on your flower beds. Okay, um, so the with these different kinds of cicadas, the different broods of cicadas. Now, you know we have uh, brood ten that Indiana is at such a hot spot, which which makes it um, you know terrifying and exciting at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, but are there other lots of other of the other fifteen broods? Are there several? Are there any other ones that are uh, sort of native in Indiana or common in Indiana? So there, there are a few. Um, so uh, uh, Brood 14 does have a few spots in Indiana, and there are a few others. But Brood 10 is really the one that you can find throughout the state and in really large numbers in Indiana. That's the big one for us. Okay. Yeah, I think I've heard of uh, perhaps in 2023, Brood 12 is supposed to emerge in Allen and Orange counties. Does that sound right? Um, I, I'm, I'm not positive about the dates, but that, that may be, that may be the case there. Like I said, there are other broods that do come out, um, in, in Indiana. It's just, again, it's, it's smaller, more localized areas. Gotcha. Okay. So Elizabeth, do you get together with, um, 
with uh, entomologists and, and other states that are have high concentrations and you know share notes about what they're finding and what you're finding? Um, oh yeah, I mean we we all it's the entomology world is a pretty small world, so we do a, a lot of us do talk to each other, um, and that that's one of the things about this the cicada safari effort and also the iNaturalist projects is it's um, about collecting the data in kind of centralized places where it can easily be shared with one another. Um, yeah, Sarah. Okay, we got another question from email here. How do cicadas serve the environment? What is their function? Um, Elizabeth, do you want to keep going and get to that one? Sure, sure. Um, I, so this is this is such a tricky question, um, just because I, I don't know. I, I never know quite how to answer what is their function because they, they contribute to so many things. They have so many different impacts on the environment. Um, the, the cicadas, so as we've talked about already, they when they emerge, they provide all of this food for all sorts of um, other animals that eat insects. They also, um, when they die, they decompose and they provide this, this um, nutrient uh, pulse into the soil that's at a really unusual time of year. Um, so they, they have all these ripple effects because basically what you're doing is you're taking these nutrients that have been accumulating underground for 17 years and then all of a sudden in the space of about a month and a half you're you're bringing those to the surface um so it's 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 really an amazing phenomenon and i would say the function of cicadas is to make more cicadas <laughs> yes <laughs> Yes, that is okay. That is that is very true. That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. There, there are a lot of benefits that they bring with them. They do cycle nutrients and aerate the soil and provide food, and so they, there, it's an amazing phenomenon to think of all these billions, really, of individuals working at the same time in changing uh, our environment. Steve, where do you expect some of the hot spots to be in Bloomington? Uh, I know you mentioned Griffey Lake. I live down by the National Forest, and I'm just expecting the next six weeks are going to be rough. Um. Yeah, anywhere where there was good habitat 17 years ago will probably be a, a hot spot this year. Um, and I know there's some areas where there's some um, trees you know, spread out, maybe not as thick as they are at Griffey. Uh, those seem to be good areas to see them anyway. Um, but they're they're going to be pretty much everywhere. But in some areas, they will be more concentrated for sure. All right. We have just a few more minutes to go. This is one of those shows that goes by really fast because we're getting lots of questions and we're trying to field those as fast as we can. We have many of our own too. I, I just want to go back again to the idea of um, this as such a, a rare occurrence every 17 years and, and as an educational opportunity. And I know Megan, Elizabeth, and and Steve, you've all mentioned educational opportunities about, if not cicadas, just about insects in general. So, Megan, could you talk about some of these opportunities for people when, when Brood 10 comes um, and is here in force? Sure. I think you've got a really excellent opportunity to get out in the woods and see what a big difference one species can make in the world. Um, and these, like I said, are 17 year cicadas. So they won't be back for another 17 years. Who knows where we'll all be then. Um, so this is an opportunity to teach kids about the longevity of insects, how insects play a role. I mean, all of these items that we've talked about today with um, what they're feeding and their part in our environment and what they can do for our trees and what they do to our trees, everything can be talked about with education and outreach um, to your friends and colleagues and families. Um, this isn't just an insect that comes in and brings a lot of noise. It's an insect that comes in and brings a lot of, of uh, impact. So, so this is a good uh, learning point about how one species can make such a big difference in our worlds. Elizabeth? 
Yeah, uh, and and just to kind of expand on what Megan said, I, this is such a great opportunity because I think a lot of times the insects that people are really aware of and interacting with tend to be the ones that are causing problems for them, whether those are wasps stinging them or mosquitoes biting them. Um, but with the cicadas, you know, they're not going to bite you. They're not going to sting you. Nothing like that. The, the biggest issue people run into usually is the noise. So it's a great opportunity to get kind of up close and personal with an insect. Uh, you can hold them and they're not going to bite you um, and really kind of start to think about what they're doing in our ecosystem, learning about them, um, learning about what um, sort of like an insect life cycle looks like. So there's, it's, it's a really great opportunity to learn more about insects if you um, are someone who usually kind of ignores them. You have this title of exotic forest pest educator. Would you call these pests? Not at all. Uh, that's that's kind of a little bit misleading, I will admit. Um, so normally I work with invasive species, which are pests. So those are the um, invasive forest pests, so exotic forest pests. Um, but this year I get to tell people about cicadas. So I get to tell people about kind of a, a fun, exciting insect that they can really just enjoy. All right. Thank you. And Steve, I'm going to let you wrap it up. And if you, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in the city on June 11th. I don't know if you have that information. I'm sorry. I don't have that in front of me. I I would like to take this opportunity to recruit Megan and Elizabeth to help us out with Bugfest on October 2nd. If they're interested, we can get some more information to, to you guys about that. But uh, if people are interested in insects, I really do encourage you to check out Bugfest, uh, which will be held at Hilltop again this year. If you, uh, since Steve wasn't aware of this, and I, and no, no, no shame to that, Steve. But apparently, there is an event called uh, Nature Sound Cicadas as the topic. Um, there's Cicada Brood X musical guests Rex Miller on congas and percussion. Um, it's on June 11th. So people can go to the, the city's website and find out more about that. I want to thank our guests today, Steve Cotter, Megan Abraham, and Elizabeth Barnes. And for our producer, Benta Boutier, co-host Sarah Whitmire, and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.